copy of God's Word, you can open it to John chapter 2. If not, we'll have it here on the screen or just pull it up on your phone or whatever uh, works best for you. So we're continuing our, our series through looking at what it means to be the sent people of God. Now obviously we could do that for the rest of our lives because that's what all the Bible is really about. And we'll often say that it's not so much that God's church has a mission, but it's God's mission has a church. So from the very beginning of eternity, it's not really the beginning, all of eternity, in the beginning of creation, God has existed and created all things for his glory, and that he has this vision that all peoples, that all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the earth covers the sea. And the church didn't come before that plan, the church is to be a part of that plan, that all of the people in the world would know the glory of God, and so we want to think about what it means to be that sent people in the way that Jesus came as sent. So just setting the stage each week at the end of John, John chapter 20, Jesus says, uh, Peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, even so I am sending you. And so we're looking at what that means to be the sent people of God. And before we read the scripture, one of the things that it means to be the sent people of God is to realize where we are. And so we live in the United States of America. And this week will be July the 4th, Independence Day. And churches tend to, to, to view such holidays as these in maybe one or two extremes. One extreme is to have, you know, like you walk in, and you might not even be able to tell whether if you're at the, the city patriotic event or at a church service. You might get confused really quickly, right? Are we here to celebrate America or are we here to celebrate Jesus? I'm kind of I'm confused. The, the other extreme... The other extreme is to just act like we don't even live in America. It's just to kind of be like, whoa, we're just kind of floating around in space. I think as we look in the scripture, it's, it's really not either extreme. It's really learning what it means to be, so to speak, the exiled people of God, right, whose first and primary citizenship is in heaven. But at the same time, and we talked about this in Ecclesiastes, that we want to be responsible citizens who are thankful for the opportunities, for the privileges that come with great responsibilities as the church in our country. We're thankful that we can gather here freely today and worship without threat of persecution. We're thankful for that. There are some countries where this would be very scary to do right now. And we're glad that it's not. And so as, as people who don't fall in one ditch or the other and melt America together with the kingdom of Christ somehow, or at the same time, forget where we are. We want to be a people this week to encourage you to pray for your leaders, pray for your government officials, to give thanks for the freedoms that we do have, but more importantly to say, how can we be a faithful presence of God's kingdom in this country God's called us to? And that means being a counterculture to be a counterculture. For it means that we stand together and honor one another to do the same. And so as we, uh, as we come into God's word this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and, and pray that. And we'll, we'll read and jump into the text. Father, uh, we thank you for the freedom that you give us in this country to worship you without threat of persecution. We uh, know that our brothers and sisters throughout the world right now would uh, think it odd for us not to give thanks to you for that. And so we do. 
And yet, God, we pray that we would not let our thankfulness for that freedom lead to us forgetting that we are first and foremost your people. And their identity is not found in the boundaries of this country, but in a better city, one where you reign as king. So we pray for our government officials now, that you would give them wisdom. We pray that those who don't know you would come to know you as the ultimate and true king. We pray that we would use the freedom that we have for the love of neighbor. And we pray, God, that as we celebrate this week, that you would help us to celebrate as those ultimately want glory to be brought to your name. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read John 2 and verse 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. In John chapter 2, we see this big and beautiful picture of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. But often, this is not maybe one of the miracles that we first think of when we think of the glory of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see why this is important as we think about what it means to be God's sent people. Kathy has a friend that told her a story recently that is kind of shocking, and yet it is amazing. When she was in, earlier in her college days, they, her and a group of uh, friends went on a mission trip somewhere in Eastern Europe. And I can't remember exactly where it was, but in the vicinity of Russia. And this was in the days, and I think it still is the case, where it was very dangerous to do this, particularly as a young woman, because the potential for you to be abducted through human trafficking was very high, at least in the particular area that they were in. And so one of the things that they were told is, whatever you do, don't get in a taxi. You know, just let's stay together in the group. Because uh, it's been said that if you get in a taxi, it may not actually be a taxi. They may drive you out in the middle of nowhere, and you never see anybody that you know again. Well, they were in a hurry one day. They got separated from the group and sort of thought, as you often think, maybe on such trips, that's probably just a dull exaggeration. 
Now, I remember when I was younger and we went on a mission trip to Chicago, they're like, don't wear blue. They'll think you're a member of the Crips or whatever. And I'm like, are they really going to think I'm a member of a gang, <laughs> you know, and like take me out because I'm threatening their turf? And so they were sort of thinking like that, right? It's probably, it's probably just exaggeration. They wanted to care for us. And so they were in a hurry. They, the car, taxi pulls up. They wave their hands. They jump in the back seat and take off for their destination. Well, they noticed fairly quickly, even though they had been there a short time, it didn't look like they were going in the direction of their destination. And what was supposed to be just a five or ten minute trip now moved into more like 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, they began to panic and realized that they, this car wasn't about to stop. And so they, uh, they didn't know what to do. The men were speaking a foreign language. They got on the phone. It looked like they were making plans. They had now got on the outside of the city, and they were moving into this remote area. And one girl was, was really starting to panic but was getting no response, and the other girl somehow remaining calm, and uh, a call came on the phone to one of the men, and he answered it, and, you know, he couldn't tell exactly what was being said, but you could tell there was an agreement that was taking place, and so they pulled the car over to the side of the road and just told the girls to get out and drove away. They were scared to death, but they had been rescued. They had been free. They really didn't know why. Well, the girl, they got back up together with the group and she was embarrassed when she got back home to tell her mom about what had happened and I can't even remember if they even told the group what had happened, you know, because we're just so embarrassed. But whenever it happened, I wish Kathy was in here, she can tell you the story way better, is the mom said when she told her that at exactly at the time that that was going on, she had felt impressed in her spirit to call her friends that were a part of her church and to have them all pray for the safety of her daughter at exactly that time. Now, these are uh, good old Baptist girls, so for those of you who are thinking, well, they're, you know, maybe exaggerating, you know, we don't, people from that background aren't tending to exaggerate that stuff or tending to not believe it, and maybe that's how some of us can be. We kind of, if we're not careful, we can begin to be people who mock God's power as we pray for sometimes what can seem to be the smallest things. I mean, how many of us have heard somebody pray for traveling mercies, right? Have prayed that the Lord would lead, guide, and direct. And although those may be sort of trite, empty phrases, if we're not careful, is that we begin to have this mindset that, you know, we probably shouldn't pray for the little things. Some things are too small, or we think some things are too big. But we get this glimpse into John chapter 2, where Jesus just turns water into wine. Who did that heal? Nobody. Many of us would not even think we should ask him to do something like that. He has more important things to do that we are very hesitant to ask for Jesus to demonstrate His glory and power in certain ways, in certain times, and in certain places, because we think, you know, that's just kind of simple-minded. 
That's kind of less spiritual. But I think what God's Word is calling us to see and to believe as the sent people of God is that we should want to see God's power displayed in all things. That there should be nothing too little or there should be nothing too big that leads us to think that God is not a good Father who wants us to ask that He would provide a demonstration of His glory so that people come to know who Jesus really is. We're going to be the sent people of God like we see in the New Testament. And these are the things we've talked about already. We've got to be a faithful presence, right? This is what missional community life is all about. It's not just scattershot missions, but we choose particular people groups and we're going to just keep showing up there faithfully. But we also need to, this is what we talked about last week, we've got to undergird that and saturate that with prayer. But the next thing we see in God's, word through God's people is not only are they a faithful presence and not only are they fervent in prayer but they are people who ask God to demonstrate his power so that and we'll get to this a little today but more in weeks to come so that then they can give a clear gospel proclamation of the one who is our savior Jesus we're going to look at this call this morning to ask God to powerfully demonstrate His glory into meeting the needs of His people. So nerd out moment for a second. Our church, if you don't realize it, is neither cessationist. What that word means is you believe that God's gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Right? God didn't do that stuff in here. Right? That was oh, Book of Acts, one time, happening. We're not going to do that debate right now. But just so you know, we don't think that. We think God is still at work today through the power of His Spirit. But we're also not on the other side of that extreme to where we think that if you don't experience the power of God in certain ways and in certain manifestations, that you're somehow a lesser Christian or on a lower level or don't even actually have the Spirit of God. So we're going to look at how these things come together a little bit today because that's not a theological debate for us. This is very essential in what it means to be the sent people of God that want to see God do things we just know we can't do. The first thing is that we see in here is we need to tackle the problem of asking God to powerfully meet our immediate needs. That is to ask God to do things that are not the most important things but are still important. Most important thing is what? People come to know Jesus and enter into a, a, a vibrant living relationship with Him. That's most important. But in the Bible, we see God's people always asking God to meet immediate, temporal needs in the here and now. And this is what we see happening in this text. Mary brings this immediate, temporal need to Jesus. Mary, Jesus, the disciples, they're at this wedding. Maybe they're connected to it. It's a family. Maybe it's not. Here they are. And first of all, we need to see that we need to get this. Jesus is at a wedding. For those of us who have this view of God, this view of Jesus that maybe is more spiritual than him or thinks it is, is that Jesus went to a party. He enjoyed himself. He had fun with people. He wasn't just a, a walking Bible study. He's at a wedding, hanging out with friends, his family. 
says here, maybe a clue that when they were there, it was on the third day. This could just be a reference to everything that's happening in the course of the week, or it could be a clue that we know big things happen on third days in the life of Jesus. But whatever it is, this wedding situation was important to him. It was important to his family. And they've ran out of wine. Now in these days, this was a huge embarrassment in a shame culture. But even today, let's say you're at your wedding and you run out of cake. At your wedding, you don't have enough food to feed everybody. In these days, the wedding lasted, the wedding celebration was like a whole week long. It was a big deal. And they're out of drinks. And so Mary goes to Jesus assuming that he can do something about it. Assuming that he would care to do something about it. Jesus at first here we see resists this and then yet will act on it. This is where we see this tension. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What he's pointing to, talking about his hour in the Gospel of John, is he's talking about the hour of his death, the hour of his resurrection. This is why I came. He will say this again and again in the Gospel of John. This is the mission I've come to accomplish. And so he's doing, he's just always the master of this. He's, he's pointing out, hey, that, that's not really the main reason I've come to just make sure people don't run out of wine at a wedding. But what is amazing here, and isn't a great example of Mary's faith, is when she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She's showing she's boldly trusting his power, his will. He could say no. And she says, do whatever he tells you. Oftentimes, we're just very hesitant to have that kind of faith that we think we need. I remember a, a couple in the church that we had previously served in before we came here. And I say this very carefully, and I'm going to be giving examples this morning because I've asked some of you to, to send in it of God's power. And one of the things, this, this couple had been wanting to have a child for a long time, for a year or two, and was just uh, unable to do so. But they hadn't really shared this with anybody because they knew that they were an otherwise uh, very well-blessed family. They really didn't want to become the center of attention. They knew that there were many seemingly bigger, better, more important things going on in other people's lives. And so nobody knew. Nobody asked. Nobody knew to pray for them. What was amazing is they finally came to the, the elders of the church and they said, we, we would like for you to pray for us. I just want to go ahead and say now that we want to create that type of culture in our church that believes that there's nothing too small, nothing too big that we won't go to the Lord and pray for. This is one of the only times in my life that I've experienced something like this that I just really can't write off. Is that night, we as we gathered around them, and prayed for them. It felt like it was maybe just a normal time of prayer. But two weeks later, they called and let us know that according to every, every diagnostic test they could take to the doctor, 
that that was the night that they conceived their baby. Little Roman now is about two years old. As much as I'd like to, in my overcritical mind, explain that away, I can't do anything but give God the glory for the fact that he did not have to. Just like Jesus could have said, no, not now, or no, not never. But he chose to break in and demonstrate his power. The challenge for us is to realize that we we need to be willing to not feel like we're an inconvenience to God. We don't need to think that our situation is either too small or too large that we cannot ask Him to powerfully intervene in our life. In a couple ways, one is just to make the party better. That can feel so unspiritual to us to say, Jesus... You know, just make sure we have enough hot dogs here on Wednesday night so that everybody gets one. Make sure that the Kool-Aid, you know, stays full. Make sure that, that we as a family are able to have enough so that we can have one another over for our friends that don't know Jesus. Some of us view Jesus as somebody who's maybe too important to ask for some stuff. We see him provide and heal a sick brother. By the way, this is why as a church we do spend so much time partying together. It's because we believe when Jesus comes, the party doesn't get worse. It should get better. We should have fun together. We should enjoy one another. And we should do that in such a way to demonstrate the glory of God. But also, we don't need just to ask that the party gets better. We need to ask that God makes our pain better. Jesus here is pointing to much bigger things we'll get to in just a second. But we don't need to accept that just because we live in a fallen world full of brokenness, that, you know, it just is what it is. I need to keep my mouth shut and just bear with it, not be a burden to anybody else or a burden to God, not ask for prayer. No, God wants us to come to Him. In the face of cancer, mental illnesses, broken marriages, addictions, barrenness, continued sin, continued suffering, to plead and say, God, do what only you can do. I believe it's been said that Charles Spurgeon said, what if God decided today to answer all the prayers that you prayed for yesterday? Would you thank him now? I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and ask for more. We need to pray with faith. And we don't need to let the fact that sometimes God's will is no or not yet cause us to not say, do whatever you will, God. Just because our needs may not feel like the most important does not mean they are not important and important to God. The first thing we see then is just this problem that we have oftentimes of asking for God to do things that feel less important. But the second thing we have to be convinced of is that God through Christ and the Spirit have the power to meet those needs. That Jesus is able to do what most people would not do and what no one apart from Him 
can do. And we see this in verses 6 through 10. The first thing is that Jesus tells them to fill up these six stone water jars. Now, we believe all of God's Word comes through God's Spirit. There's no empty words. There's no throwaway phrases. And so this is really important. Why is John giving us these details? Why didn't John just say, Jesus turned water into wine, and it was really awesome? You know, praise Him. Now, there's more at work here. And as we read in these Gospel writers, we see there's just this, this amazing uh, combination of the Spirit of God working through the personality and even literary gifts of men. And this is going on here for sure. So, six stone water jars. First off, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to perform seven signs that display His glory. And so even here, we, John's giving us this contrast of there's just six stone water jars. And these six stone water jars are what? What are they right now? They're empty. They're barren. They're not full. And what are they there for? The Jewish rites of purification. This is a tradition that's been set up by the Jewish leaders at this time. And this was their mindset. We will have them with all these rules and all these laws and all of these traditions. And this is how Israel will be purified. This is how Israel will be restored. We get everybody washing their hands the right way. We get everybody keeping all of these extra laws. We guilt them. We burden them. There's a picture here that that just leads to emptiness. That leads to the party not getting better. It leads to the party dying. The picture of Israel at that time, it was barren. It was empty. It was broken. And the hopes of Israel, though, as we look into the Old Testament, were in this day when the Messiah, the King, the Christ of Israel would come and He would usher in a new age that was marked by nothing greater than this image of a great wedding feast. In Amos 9, 11 through 14, we hear, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. Raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus is saying, this is not happening. Through the man-made religions and traditions of the leaders of Israel at that time. It's left everyone empty. But it's also in the backdrop, as John writes this, of a Greek culture who looked to a god known as Dionysius. Somebody can correct me. The god of wine. If you're my age, third eye blind. The god of wine is the song. Right? And even in that song, it just leads to emptiness. To 
nothingness. That religious purification without Jesus is emptiness. And the party of the world without Jesus is emptiness. But these are both the ways that so many in our culture seek to deal with the barrenness and brokenness in their lives. Either through Jesusless religion or Jesusless revelry. Both ways we try to numb it. Both ways we try to deal with the cancers, the addictions, the broken marriages, the broken lives. But the call here is to see that Jesus is the only one that can bring that type of restoration. He is the only one who can usher in the kingdom. In verses 7 through 10, we see that Jesus not only is able to fill these empty jars, but to fill them to the brim and to give even better than what had come first. It's a picture that the the new covenant, the new relationship with God that he gives us is better than the old. It's a picture that the new life that he gives us is better even than the good that was found in the old. It's a picture of his power to make all things new. And it's a power he wants to show us that one day will transform this whole creation, but now breaks in. It doesn't break in fully. It hasn't broken in totally, but it has broken in truly. And that God in His grace and for His glory chooses at certain times to just show His glory here on earth as it one day will be throughout all the world. And He wants us to ask for that. I've asked you guys to share some story. Here's one. She's not here this morning that Shelby shared. Pretty, pretty wild. Here we go, right? Her words. I was in Lima, Peru. Is that right? Lima or Lima? Residents translated for me. Kathy translates my English for me. She said, me and a couple others were wandering around and met a man in a wheelchair. Now, this is Shelby. We know Shelby, right? This isn't Benny Hinn. This is Shelby. She'll be back when she gets back from mission. His legs were shriveled, and we found out that he had, had, a, had never walked due to a birth defect. We asked if we could pray for him. At first, I stood back at a distance, until my friend said, come on with us. She's skeptical. She's nervous about this. Said we laid hands on his legs, and as we prayed, his legs began to grow. In parentheses, it was insane. After praying for a good while, we asked how he felt. Prayed once more, and then watched him jump out of his chair and run circles around us, praising the name of Jesus. He heard the gospel, surrendered his life to Christ, got connected to a discipleship group in a local church. He said, this moment opened my eyes to the awe-inspiring, limitless power of God, and my prayer life and daily Christian walk were utterly transformed afterward. I'm such a skeptic, guys. It's Shelby. God doesn't have to do that. 
He doesn't have to. He's displayed his glory fully. If he never does that, I'm, I'm kind of content. But I want to say, like, I, I want to be like Mary and I want to go to him and I want to say, this person that I know and I love that has this mental illness or has, or has, this, or has this cancer, God, would you do a powerful work in their life? And I'm just more convinced as we go on the mission of God, as the New Testament people of God, that if we're going to see the type of change we want to see happen in our lives and in the people we're serving, then we just got to get to the point where we realize we can't do this on our own. Religion, even good religion, won't do it. Like, we can't program freedom from these things. We can't guilt people into freedom from these things. have to show people that numbing it doesn't work either. Whether that be through an addiction or whether that be through work or activity, we need the power of God. We need to point it, point them to Christ. So we transition here to just the final point and share this story from Hannah. Everybody look at Hannah and it's her story in awkward. I'm not sure if this story fits. Everybody knows Hannah, right? Hannah, not too crazy. Hannah didn't grow up in a Christian home, right? She's not been like trained to think weird thoughts, you know, and be gullible. Just several months after I started looking into Christianity, I began believing in my head that Christianity could be true. I was very resistant because I didn't want to be a Christian. One night I began asking Jacob apologetic type questions about God and Christ. I started shaking and feeling strange in my body, lightheaded even. Even. I spent a couple of hours talking with his dad in that physical state. I think I was shaking because I was afraid, and I was afraid because I, per- I felt purposely and absolutely pursued by God. I wasn't converted that night, but I could no longer deny that God was real, personal, powerful, and pursuing me. It was terrifying at that time. I want us to pray, guys, that God will terrify people into a loving relationship with Him through His power. Is this not what we see in the Bible, is that when people meet Jesus... Really and powerfully, they fall on their face like dead men and women. It's not like always when the power of God comes, it's not usually like a circus. It's usually more like an overwhelming experience that we are put in overwhelming awe of His presence. So it leads us to the, to the last point here. Hang with me, verses 11 and 12. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The purpose for all of the manifestations of God's glory are so that Jesus would be known and so that disciples would believe in him and come to know him. That's the point. This is why so many of us are so skeptical about all of these things. It's because we've seen these church shows where there's 
all kinds of stuff happening, and there's just this great absence of, guess who? Jesus. I've been to them, right? I've seen people crawling on their legs and barking like dogs. And guess what? No gospel shared. No Jesus. But what the real Jesus wants to do is to manifest his glory so that then people come to know his person. Because all of this is pointing to so much bigger things than just a wedding getting better. It's pointing to the fact that we are a people and live among a people who have empty hearts that are filled up with all the wrong things. That's what sin is. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is that we've given our lives to other gods that have left us empty. But Jesus comes to free us. Earlier in John we saw he comes as the one who is full of grace and truth so that he might fill us with all the glory This is why he points us to that hour when he goes to the cross. Because it's on the cross he is going to bear, or as it were, drink in all the emptiness that we filled our lives with. And drink in all the judgment that we deserve. And then rise so that we might be filled with goodness and faith. The better wine. And one day make all things This is normal life. The mission of God is not a miracle show. The mission of God is that we see His glory and then we walk with Him in the stuff of everyday life. We go wash our dishes, do our laundry, mow our yard, go to work, and do it all with Jesus. I want you to imagine we wrap this up, someone driving to the Grand Canyon and getting to a sign, I've never been there, so I'm totally making this up, getting to a sign advertising the Grand Canyon like it is the most awesome sign you could ever imagine. They brought in the best artists in the country to do this sign. And the family is like, wow, what an awesome sign. They're getting close to the Grand Canyon. So they all get out of the car and they all stand by the sign and they set their phone up or get somebody driving by to hold it. They take a picture of themselves by the sign. And then they load up and get in the car and go home. I'm like, what? You came to see the Grand Canyon. Why are you satisfied with the sign? This is what Jesus is saying. We want to see the signs, right? Your third eye blind, ace of base. Right? We want to see the signs. We want to see Jesus demonstrate his power in people's lives, in our lives, in ways where we just have to stand back, put our hands over our mouth and say, you, we, we can't get any glory for that. God did that. But we don't want to stop there. Because the point of the sign is to point us to Jesus so that we then know him and walk 
with Him and follow Him on His mission. So that we go home with Him. So that we sit with Him. This is why we ask God to powerfully demonstrate His glory. So that the real Jesus will be made known. Father, we thank You for Your power. Could have shared more. We all have different stories related to it, God, but we thank you for breaking into this world. And ultimately, we thank you for the greatest sign of your glory, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And may we never even let the truth that we know of that stop us short from an everyday life with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.